Welcome back to Game Cool Books. This is Wesley Schantz. Thanks for sticking with me through that long and rambunctious chapter three. This is episode five, The Smell of Glamour. Somewhere Pullman, oh, I have it here, talks about how he came to begin reading William Blake by way of Allen Ginsberg. This is In Soft Beulah's Night, William Blake and Vision. Sometimes we find a poet or a painter or a musician who functions like a key that unlocks a part of ourselves we never knew was there. The experience is not like learning to appreciate something that we once found difficult or abarbative, as we might conscientiously try to appreciate the worth of the fairy queen and decide that, yes, on balance, it is full of interesting and admirable things. It's a more visceral, physical sensation than that, and it comes most powerfully when we're young. Something awakes that was asleep, doors open that were closed, lights come on in all the windows of a palace inside us, the existence of which we never suspected. So it was with me in the early 1960s, at the age of 16, with William Blake. I came to Blake through Allen Ginsberg, whose howl I read, half aghast, half intoxicated. I knew who Blake was. I even had an early poem of his by heart. How sweet I roamed from field to field. I must have come across the tiger in some school anthology. But if Blake could inspire the sort of hellish rapture as celebrated and howled about by Ginsberg, then he was the sort of poet I needed to read. Hellish rapture was exactly what I most wanted. And there's something of that howl or that Walt Whitman-esque barbaric yawp behind Allen Ginsberg about that scene where Lyra screams from the rooftop her powerlessness to do anything about Roger's disappearance is accentuated there by the tranquility of the clouds, the habitual life of the college going on without her, the lights being lit, the zeppelin, like the one she will soon be on, shrinking in the distance. And yet, in direct proportion to this powerlessness is the strength of her determination to rescue Roger. But she's interrupted at this point from considering the ramifications of her resolve and from making the connection between the missing children and Lord Asriel's slides and dust, interrupted by the summons to change for dinner, where Lyra and the reader, for different but overlapping reasons, become fascinated by one of the guests in particular. Now, we come this week to chapter 4, the alethiometer. We'll hear later what that word means, but for now we can say just a little bit about how its description, the golden compass, became the title of this book rather than Northern Lights, as Pullman had intended, and as it is titled in the UK editions. I'm reading this from a Mental Floss article by Jeff Wells, the title Golden Compass was a mistake. Pullman first called his series The Golden Compasses, a reference to a line from Milton's epic poem, The Golden Compasses prepared in God's eternal store to circumscribe the universe and all created things. 
The compass, in this case, refers to the tool used to draw circles, not the one that indicates direction. After Pullman submitted the first book's manuscript to U.S. publisher Alfred A. Knopf, editors there mistakenly referred to it as the Golden Compass, thinking the name a reference to young Lyra's alethiometer. The name stuck, even after Pullman informed them that the title in the U.K. and elsewhere would be Northern Lights. Rather than fight with Knopf, though, Pullman acquiesced, Quote, their obduracy in this matter was accompanied by such generosity in the matter of royalty advances, flattery, promises of publicity, etc., that I thought it would be churlish to deny them this small pleasure. Elsewhere, and I can't find it now, I think he says that it was the same editor who was responsible for the change from the first Harry Potter book from the Philosopher's Stone to the Sorcerer's Stone, and he remarks that the one makes sense, and the other doesn't. But there you go. And you'll find, if you look it up a little further, elsewhere in Laurie Frost's uh, elements of his dark materials, um, her guide to Philip Pullman's trilogy, uh, she notes that references to the instrument, the alethiometer, uh, as brass in the UK edition are changed to gold in the US edition to reflect this title change. Anyhow, we watched Tony Macarios from the point of view of Mrs. Coulter back in chapter 3. Watched him from her perspective when she was first introduced there. And now, in chapter 4, we are placed back in Lyra's perspective and we view Mrs. Coulter, though we can't fully shake a sense of worrying about what Mrs. Coulter's view might be towards Lyra. Just as before, the dominant impression of her is marked by her beauty and refinement, and just as with Tony, her first foray into conversation with Lyra has to do with eating. I hope you'll sit next to me at dinner, said Mrs. Coulter, making room for Lyra on the sofa. I'm not used to the grandeur of a master's lodging. You'll have to show me which knife and fork to use. Besides this ingratiating invitation to Lyra to tell her about manners, when they do sit together at dinner, Mrs. Coulter listens as Lyra recounts her half-wild life. Tell me about yourself, Lyra. Have you always lived at Jordan College? Within five minutes, Lyra had told her everything about her half-wild life. Her favorite routes over the rooftops, the battle of the clay beds, the time she and Roger had caught and roasted a rook, her intention to capture a narrowboat from the Egyptians and sail it to Abingdon, and so on. She even, looking around and lowering her voice, told her about the trick she and Roger had played on the skulls in the crypt. And we have just heard these same stories. Once more, we're put uncomfortably close to the Coltlerian perspective. For this new audience, Lyra does shift the story about the Rook, and ominously, although she may mention him in passing in the course of her stories, throughout the chapter, she doesn't directly mention Roger, and particularly his disappearance. Both Asriel and the Intercessor had picked up on Lyra's friendship with Roger in their conversations with her 
Miss Coulter does not. And Lyra's forgetting about him upon meeting Mrs. Coulter, and then for a long time after. It's only in Chapter 5 that we'll finally get an unambiguous word about just how long and what time of year we're in. This neglect of Roger is one of the most uncomfortable things about this part of the story. But the way that Lyra is taken in by Mrs. Coulter is another. One funny aspect of this comes in her contrasting Mrs. Coulter and the female scholars continually. This happens both in the narrator's voice and in Lyra's. So the question Lyra had asked there at the start of the chapter was, Are you a female scholar? said Lyra. She regarded female scholars with a proper Jordan disdain. There were such people, but, poor things, they could never be taken more seriously than animals dressed up and acting a play. Mrs. Coulter, on the other hand, was not like any female scholar Lyra had seen, and certainly not like the two serious elderly ladies who were the other female guests. Lyra had asked the question expecting the answer no, in fact, for Mrs. Coulter had such an air of glamour that Lyra was entranced. She could hardly take her eyes off her. Not really, Mrs. Coulter said. I'm a member of Dame Hannah's College, but most of my work takes place outside Oxford. Tell me about yourself. So she distracts, diverts the attention from that question entirely. And later we hear, The word female only suggested female scholars to Lyra, and she involuntarily made a face. To be exiled from the grandeur of Jordan, the splendor and fame of its scholarship, to a dingy, brick-built boarding house of a college at the northern end of Oxford, with dowdy female scholars who smelled of cabbage and mothballs like those two at dinner. The effect of the contrast between Mrs. Coulter and the other scholars is reminiscent of the contrast between Jordan College and other colleges, or between Jordan and the Magisterium. And... A whole new layer of irony in this is introduced once Pullman has done a little more thinking about the scholar named here, Hannah Ralph. He writes her into two subsequent stories, Lyra's Oxford and La Belle Sauvage. The seeds are planted in this scene, as well as at the end of the amber spyglass, for a kind of harmonious assertion of experience and wisdom, laboring humbly to keep alive the lessons of innocence which Hannah Ralph will embody as a reader and teacher of the alethiometer. That's later, and then also here, in a smaller way, by her questions about school. When the ladies withdrew for coffee, Dame Hannah said, Tell me, Lyra, are they going to send you to school? Lyra looked blank. I don't, I don't know, she said. Probably not, she added for safety. I wouldn't want to put them to any trouble, she went on, piously, or expense. It's probably better if I just go on living at Jordan and getting educated by the scholars here when they've got a bit of spare time. Being as they're here already, they're probably free. Along with Lyra, the unwary, innocent reader is perhaps all too ready to fall into the storyteller's trap, patronizingly dismissing Dame Hannah and... This is reminiscent, too, of Virginia Woolf in A Room of One's Own, who gives a memorable contrast between men's and women's colleges with a more complicated intention than might be immediately apparent. Mrs. Coulter is also aligned with someone 
Lyra admires even more than the scholars of Jordan. And does your uncle Lord Asriel have any plans for you? said the other lady who was a scholar at the other women's college. Yes, said Lyra. I expect so. Not school, though. He's going to take me to the north next time he goes. I remember him telling me, said Mrs. Coulter. Lyra blinked. The two female scholars sat up very slightly. The other demons, either well-behaved or torpid, did no more than flick their eyes at each other. I met him at the Royal Arctic Institute, Mrs. Coulter went on. As a matter of fact, it's partly because of that meeting that I'm here today. Are you an explorer too, said Lyra. In a kind of way, I've been to the north several times. Last year I spent three months in Greenland making observations of the aurora. That was it. Nothing and no one else existed now for Lyra. She gazed at Mrs. Coulter with awe, and listened rapt and silent to her tales of igloo-building, of seal-hunting, of negotiating with the Lapland witches. The two female scholars had nothing so exciting to tell, and sat in silence until the men came in. Her stories of the North, like Azriel's Enchant Lyra and the Reader, despite our having seen her lure the children onto the boat and destroy their letters, despite us perhaps suspecting that she is coming straight from doing the same to Roger, the complexity of each of these characters, Azriel, Coulter, the Master, is continually reinforced rather than collapsing along the simple lines of villain and hero. And I think, I think that this is very intentional on Pullman's part, and it's part of the way that he narrates the story and floats in and out of the consciousness of Lyra herself. I think it's also going to prove true of Pullman's views of storytelling, and even, perhaps, of religion, as we go along. Again, part of this has to do with Lyra's development, as she becomes more aware of her surroundings. Much as she has been unconscious of all that Mrs. Lonsdale has done for her, noticing her only to resent her scolding, her untidiness, Lyra does listen to her instructions enough so that she catches herself about to say dunno to Dame Hannah's question. This is already a somewhat different Lyra than the one who shrugged when pressed by the intercessor. Given that she does not know, but is still expected to try to answer the question politely, she begins to spin out her own hopes into a response. The answering of questions, and how truth and fiction relate in doing so, as well as manners and education, are a major theme to keep watching for, not only once Lyra starts to read the alethiometer, but even in these quiet scenes of conversation. And there are two parallel conversations with the master here, which represent Lyra's final break with Jordan and Oxford. The first coincides with Mrs. Coulter's taking responsibility for Lyra, the second with the master giving Lyra responsibility for the alethiometer. Later, when the guests were preparing to leave, the master said, Stay behind, Lyra. I'd like to talk to you for a minute or two. Go into my study, child. Sit down there and wait for me. Puzzled, Tired, exhilarated, Lyra did as he told her. Cousins the manservant showed her in, and pointedly left the door open so that he could see what she was up to from the hall, where he was helping people on with their coats. Lyra watched for Mrs. Coulter, but she didn't see her, and then the master came into the study and shut the door. 
puzzled, tired, and exhilarated, a similar combination will be repeated later when Lyra looks at the alethiometer for the first time. And in each of these conversations, by the setting and the master's presence, should also recall that coda with the librarian in chapter 2 when we first heard about the alethiometer. As the master was unable then to prevent Azrael's designs, so he seems to have been unable now to prevent Mrs. Coulter captivating Lyra. What he was unable to do uh, aside, he, in both cases, is able to do something with the alethiometer. Uh, there are some questions that arise, though. The question of why he decides it to, to give it to Lyra at this point is a more important one, maybe. But here's another thing that I'm curious about, coming back to this book after reading La Belle Sauvage. Is it the master who's been reading, or has he only been keeping this alethiometer? Perhaps the complicated readings that he related to the librarian were actually performed by Dame Hannah. Anyhow, the hooded eyes of the master and his demon were one of the first things we heard about him back in chapter one, and how they look alike now makes Lyra reflect on his mortality. The master sighed. In his black suit and black tie, he looked as much like his demon as anyone could, and suddenly Lyra thought that one day, quite soon, he would be buried in the crypt under the oratory, and an artist would engrave a picture of his demon on the, black, the brass plate for his coffin, and her name would share the space with his. Now, I think it would be very interesting if there are more references to brass related to the alethiometer, given that little indication there. Anyhow, um, his sigh and his smile are immediately contrasted with the grin of the imp-like pleasure on the face of the golden monkey. And what should strike us on rereading is how Lyra does not understand the full implications of either the grimace or the grin. The first-time reader, though, they may experience the vague uneasiness conveyed by the narration, is like Lyra carried along. The master smiled. He smiled so rarely that he was out of practice, and anyone watching, Lyra wasn't in a state to notice, would have said it was a grimace of sadness. Well, we had better ask her in to talk about it, he said. He left the room, and when he came back a minute later with Mrs. Coulter, Lyra was on her feet, too excited to sit. Mrs. Coulter smiled, and her demon bared his white teeth in a grin of imp-like pleasure. As she passed her on the way to the armchair, Mrs. Coulter touched Lyra's hair briefly, and Lyra felt a current of warmth flow into her and blushed. We couldn't possibly know how the master's sadness and the monkey's glee are bound up with the mystery of dust, which he has tried to protect Lyra from, but which it seems to be her destiny to explore. Mrs. Coulter's connection to dust is extremely tentative at this stage. Little hints have been dropped here and there that all the children in the warehouse were under the age of puberty, that she knows Lord Asriel and has studied the Aurora and explored in the north, and then there's the master's cryptic remarks about someone with no love for Lord Asriel who won't have forgotten Lyra. 
All this, nevertheless, gives no indication of how crucial a role she plays in the drama of dust. The master's final speeches here sum up the grown-up perspective that Lyra has been largely unaware of all along, and he tries to translate it for her without divulging too much to begin to bring her over into a more mature outlook. The language for this is grounded in love. He says, I should have made time before now to talk for a talk with you, Lyra, he said after a few moments. I was intending to do so in any case, but it seems that time is further on than I thought. You have been safe here in Jordan, my dear. I think you've been happy. You haven't found it easy to obey us, but we are very fond of you, and you've never been a bad child. There's a lot of goodness and sweetness in your nature, and a lot of determination. You're going to need all of that. Things are going on in the wide world I would have liked to protect you from. By keeping you here in Jordan, I mean. But that's no longer possible. Then later... Good girl, come in quickly. We haven't got long, said the master, and drew the curtain back across the door as soon as she had entered. He was fully dressed in his usual black. Aren't I going after all? Lyra asked. Yes, I can't prevent it, said the master, and Lyra didn't notice at the time what an odd thing that was to say. Lyra, I'm going to give you something, and you must promise to keep it private. Will you swear to that? Yes, said Lyra. He crossed to the desk and took from a drawer a small package wrapped in black velvet. When he unfolded the cloth, Lyra saw something like a large watch or a small clock, a thick disk of gold and crystal. It might have been a compass or something of the sort. What is it? she said. It's an alethiometer. It's one of only six that were ever made, Lyra. I urge you again, keep it private. It would be better if Mrs. Coulter didn't know about it, your uncle. But what does it do? It tells you the truth. As for how to read it, you'll have to learn by yourself. Now go. It's getting lighter. Hurry back to your room before anyone sees you. He folded the velvet over the instrument and thrust it into her hands. It was surprisingly heavy. Then he put his own hands on either side of her head and held her gently for a moment. She tried to look up at him and said, What were you going to say about Uncle Asriel? Your uncle presented it to Jordan College some years ago. He might. Before he could finish, there came a soft, urgent knock on the door. She could feel his hands give an involuntary tremor. Quick now, child, he said quietly. The powers of this world are very strong. Men and women are moved by tides much fiercer than you can imagine, and they sweep us all up into the current. Go well, Lyra. Bless you, child. Bless you. Keep your own counsel. Thank you, Master, she said dutifully. We might again recall Azriel and the intercessor's conversations with her, but the note of fondness in the Master's makes this different and strangely moving. And the talk of time and forever in Lyra's conception of staying at Jordan makes me think also a bit of the fox and the hound. He asks her, you must have known. That he, that he says, you knew that sometime you'd have to go to school. And when you're young, you do think that things last forever. And the whole point, of course, is that in some sense she did know this, and the experiential knowledge of it is going to be different. 
Now, the distinction between female company and guidance versus female scholars and school is the beginning of an articulation for Lyra of this overwhelming revelation, which is Mrs. Coulter. As for the kinds of lessons that she gets from Mrs. Coulter, they begin as further wonders, and we'll see more of that in chapter 5, up to and including the disillusionment, which is maybe the most important lesson Lyra receives from her. As in this scene, Pan's polecat eyes flash red, and then his fur turns from coarse brown to downy white. So there, in chapter 5, he'll assume his polecat form when Lyra tries to stand up to Mrs. Coulter. But for now, she's taken in, in both senses. Fully awake and on fire with puzzlement, Lyra nodded and slipped her bare feet into the shoes Miss Lonsdale put down for her. Never mind washing, that'll do later. Go straight down and come straight back. I'll start your packing and have something for you to wear. Hurry now. The dark quadrangle was still full of the chill night air. Overhead, the last stars were still visible, but the light from the east was gradually soaking into the sky above the hall. Lyra ran into the library garden and stood for a moment in the immense hush, looking up at the stone pinnacles of the chapel, the pearl-green cupola of the Sheldon building, the white-painted lantern of the library. Now that she was going to leave these sights, she wondered how much she'd miss them. Something stirred in the study window, and a glow of light shone out for a moment. She remembered what she had to do and tapped on the glass door. It opened almost at once. So that has a lot going on there. Um, the description that Pullman gave in that opening of his essay on William Blake ref refers to a kind of house or palace where the lights are being lit. And he recurs to that language much later in the Amber Spyglass um, as Lyra is beginning to uh, feel uh, emotions, romantic feelings, passions stirring that she has not felt before. And here it's talked about in terms of remembering, both whether she'll remember these places and miss them now that she's leaving them, and then remembering what she had to do, her duty, her manners, in a way. The image of the lantern is apparently something that's uh, not entirely a metaphor. It's, a, it's an architectural uh, element, and I'm getting this from that book, Elements of His Dark Materials, again. Again, in that conversation with the master, the narrator draws our attention to what Lyra has missed because she's so excited. Uh, we might recall the importance of his keeping Lyra's destiny private from her. And to that question about why he gives the alethiometer to her here, of course he can't tell us. Um, but could the alethiometer itself have instructed the master to pass it along? Is this perhaps his way of helping her gain knowledge for herself without directly telling her? It's much like what happens when you read a story, which isn't overly didactic, 
you're gathering information from it, but it's not exactly telling it to you. It's telling you a story. As to the alethiometer itself, we get a much clearer look at it towards the end of the chapter, the remainder of which comprises this one long upheaval of a day. But we do learn a little about it here. That it's one of only six implies great rarity, that she specifically is to keep it from Mrs. Coulter, again emphasizes her privacy, uh, and that she has to learn to read it by herself means that it's going to teach uh, self-reliance as much as anything, maybe confidence in herself. But, as we saw with Pan on the rooftop, the master is interrupted when he's trying to explain what it was Lord Asriel might. His blessing concerning the tides of time is capped by that beautiful phrase, keep your own counsel which I would really like to know how is translated in other languages, because it could, of course, be a plural your, right? Speaking to Lyra and Pantalaimon. Um, I don't know. It's only as she's saying goodbye to people that Lyra begins to remember Roger and feel guilty. It was only after she'd said goodbye to the few servants who were up and to Mrs. Lonsdale that she remembered Roger. And then she felt guilty for not having thought of him once since meeting Mrs. Coulter. How quickly it had all happened. But no doubt Mrs. Coulter would help her look for him. And she was bound to have powerful friends who could get him back from wherever he'd disappeared to. He was bound to turn up eventually. We'll see that this is a rationalization. And throughout chapter 5 it seems she never does mention him to Mrs. Coulter. Pan looks out the window of the zeppelin, with his claws digging in, somewhat like when he was a hedgehog before, though this time his pointiness seems unintentional. Mrs. Coulter had a breviary when we first saw her, and this time she highlights the difference between dull scholarship and vibrant life lessons by the papers spread out around her, which she puts away for her talk with Lyra. And Lyra is intoxicated, as Pullman was by Blake's poetry and Ginsberg's. Um, paralleling the landscape below and the new horizons that Pan, looking out the window, is interested in, is a smell of glamour that Lyra detects. Such brilliant talk. Lyra was intoxicated. Not about the North this time, but about London, and the restaurants and ballrooms, the soirees at embassies or ministries, the intrigues between Whitehall and Westminster. Lyra was almost more fascinated by this than by the changing landscape below the airship. What Mrs. Coulter was saying seemed to be accompanied by a scent of grown-upness, something disturbing but enticing at the same time. It was the smell of glamour. This is a phrase which comes straight from Pullman's biographical sketch. I have a feeling this all belongs to me. The smell of mealies was kindly and nourishing, but it didn't intoxicate like the smell of glamour. There were two kinds of glamour. My mother's, which consisted of a scent called bluegrass by Elizabeth Arden, and my father's, 
which was more complicated. There were cigarettes in it, and beer, and leather armchairs. The smell of my father's glamour was very strong in the club, which we children were sometimes allowed in, but not to run around. Uh, and then when they land, we see Vauxhall Gardens again. It's an image that Pullman may be recalling uh, from another book that he greatly admired, um, The Pleasure Garden by Leon Garfield. He writes about it in at least a couple of places, which I'll read a bit from. In his essay, Let's Write It in Red, he says, Another requirement is consistency of tone. For example, openly on Garfield, where you like, you won't find a page of sober dullness anywhere. Fantastical gloom, yes. Grimness illuminated by shafts of grotesque humor, certainly. A darkness as profound and velvety as the black of an old mezzotint, by all means. But nothing sober, nothing drab, nothing workaday. The exuberance is all of a piece. Even a first paragraph that begins like a travel guide twirls upwards into a rococo curlicue of imagery. Eastward in Clerkenwell lies the Mulberry Pleasure Garden. Lamps hang glimmering in the trees, and scores of moths flap and totter in the shadowy green, imagining themselves star-drunk. That's in the Pleasure Garden. It goes on, Garfield knew what he was doing, and that's the rule I mean. Have a sense of the kind of story you're telling, and then you'll know whether or not you're allowed to write that she can do magic. Elsewhere, in a talk he gave called Reading in the Borderland, Pullman says, This is the cover of one of my favorites among Leon Garfield's works, The Pleasure Garden. The illustration is by the great Fritz Wegner, whose work I always wished would one day illustrate some words of mine. Anyway, because I'm talking about the borderland, which means the space the book or the illustration shares with me, I'm going to talk about my reaction to this picture, the things I enjoy about it, and be quite cheerfully subjective. So what I love here, as well as the marvelously romantic atmosphere, the lights and the trees, the lovers on the benches, the orchestra on the bandstand, all that, what I love is the great command of technique that Wagner has at the tip of his pen. I love the immense range of different kinds of small movement that the pen has made. Look at the way he represents the leaves, both on the trees nearby and on the ones in the distance. Look at the row of little arbors in the background, where couples or larger groups are sitting around tables under little lights, and each table has a tablecloth. Lovely detail. And look at the sort of crisscross trellis work outside each of the arbors, which is quite different from the sort of cross hatchings we see in the shadows or in the dark sky above. Look at the crockets and finials on the lovely mock gothic bandstand, the sort of faux oriental archways over the arbors, the delightfully absurd crenellations above them. And look at the range of textures his pen can evoke. The muslin of the dresses, the velvet of the coats, the bark of the trees. We know what they'd feel like to our hand. And the way the characters themselves are moving about or standing to talk or listen to the music, the young dandies showing off their fine calves especially. Here's the opening paragraph of the novel. Eastward in Clerkenwell lies the Mulberry Pleasure Garden, six acres of leafy walks, colonnades, pavilions, and arbors of box, briar, and vine, walled in between Rag Street and New Prison Walk. When night falls, the garden opens its eyes. Lamps hang glimmering in the trees, and scores of moths flap and totter in the shadowy green, imagining themselves star-drunk. 
It's an image he loves, clearly, and it's one he recurs to again in La Belle Sauvage when we come to the grounds of the fairy manor under the earth. This all helps to situate us conceptually from the new setting of Mrs. Coulter's flat. And then the flat. Lyra could only gasp. She had seen a great deal of beauty in her short life, but it was Jordan College beauty, Oxford beauty, grand and stony and masculine. In Jordan College, much was magnificent, but nothing was pretty. In Mrs. Coulter's flat, everything was pretty. It was full of light, for the wide windows faced south, and the walls were covered in a delicate golden-white striped wallpaper. Charming pictures in gilt frames and antique looking glass, fanciful sconces bearing in barrack lamps with frilled shades, and frills on the cushions too, and flowery valances over the curtain rail, and a soft green leaf pattern carpet underfoot, and every surface was covered, it seemed to Lyra's innocent eye, with pretty little china boxes and shepherdesses and harlequins of porcelain. Mrs. Coulter smiled at her admiration. Jordan, already a memory, is recalled in contrast with the prettiness of the flat. Its being by the river connects it with commerce, but also with the Egyptians and the kidnapped kids. The windows facing south and the leaf pattern continue building Mrs. Coulter's persona of exotic balminess, shepherdesses and harlequins, china boxes, looking glasses, dazzle Lyra, and make us aware of her innocence and aware of Mrs. Coulter's awareness. The same goes for the wonder of the bath. The bathroom was another wonder. Lyra used, used to washing with hard yellow soap in a chipped basin, where the water that struggled out of the taps was warm at best and often flecked with rust. But here the water was hot, the soap rose pink and fragrant, the towels thick and cloud soft, and around the edge of the tinted mirror there were little pink lights, so that when Lyra looked into it, she saw a softly illuminated figure, quite unlike the Lyra she knew. Unlike the Lyra she knew, in more than appearance, perhaps, and most startlingly, as Pan is imitating Mrs. Coulter's demon, it either causes or at least is associated with her remembering the alethiometer, wondering as the reader must be doing, which of them she owes obedience to, Mrs. Coulter or the Master. And then come the day's outings. At the Royal Arctic Institute we hear about bear liver poison, but also about the other members, a balloonist who sailed above the pole, a scrailing, apparently the Norse word for a Native American, who mapped the ocean currents. And these great men stir Lyra's heart, much as her presence beside one of the few female members does. The description of what we would call artifacts comes next, and they are called relics again, as during Azriel's presentation. Through them we get the sense of further stories, like that panorama that finally zoomed in on Tony Macarios, or like the tales passed around about the gobblers. We hear of the great whale, of an, ar an unknown language, of Hudson's fire striker, and it all mixes fantasy and history. For all Lyra's wonder at these 
great, brave, distant heroes, it turns out that shopping is still more dizzying. Mrs. Coulter's interest and her money, her wealth, are highlighted again, this time through the medium of clothes rather than food and harpoons. A second bath, which must be unprecedented for Lyra, is marked by one of Miss Coulter's tenderest moments. By the time they'd finished, Lyra was flushed and bright-eyed with tiredness. Mrs. Coulter ordered most of the clothes packed up and delivered, and took one or two things with her when she and Lyra walked back to the flat. Then a bath, with thick-scented foam. Mrs. Coulter came into the bathroom to wash Lyra's hair, and she didn't rub and scrape like Mrs. Lonsdale, either. She was gentle. Pantalaimon watched with powerful curiosity until Mrs. Coulter looked at him, and he knew what she meant and turned away, averting his eyes modestly from these feminine mysteries, as the golden monkey was doing. He had never had to look away from Lyra before. Having Mrs. Coulter wash her hair as Pan looks away not only reinforces the growing up theme, but also this separation between Lyra and her demon, which has been suggested in little ways throughout the chapter. Finally, it's time to sleep again. The cozy bedroom, the curtains of stars, moons, and planets, and she's too tired to fall asleep, but again, Pan wants to stay awake anyway. It's a desire, this time in hearing in Where's the thing? She knew at once what he meant. Her old shabby overcoat hung in the wardrobe. A few seconds later, she was back in bed, sitting up cross-legged in the lamplight, with Pantalaimon watching closely as she unfolded the black velvet and looked at what it was the master had given her. What did he call it? She whispered. An alethiometer. There was no point in asking what that meant. It lay heavily in her hands, the crystal face gleaming, golden body exquisitely machined. It was very like a clock or a compass, for there were hands pointing to places around the dial, but instead of the hours or the points of the compass, there were several little pictures, each of them painted with extraordinary precision, as if on ivory with the finest and slenderest sable brush. She turned the dial around to look at them all. There was an anchor, an hourglass surmounted by a skull, a chameleon, a bull, a beehive, thirty-six altogether, and she couldn't even guess what they meant. There's a wheel, look, said Pantalaimon. See if you can wind it up. There were three little knurled winding wheels, in fact, and each of them turned one of the three shorter hands, which moved around the dial in a series of smooth, satisfying clicks. You could arrange them to point at any of the pictures, and once they had clicked into position, pointing exactly at the center of each one, they would not move. The fourth hand was longer and more slender and seemed to be made of a duller metal than the other three. Lyra couldn't control its movement at all. It swung where it wanted to, like a compass needle, except that it didn't settle. Meter means measure, said Pantalaimon, like thermometer. The chaplain told us that. Yes, but that's the easy bit, she whispered back. What do you think it's for? Neither of them could guess. Lyra spent a long time turning the hands to point at one symbol or another. Angel, helmet, dolphin, globe, lute, compasses, candle, thunderbolt, horse, and watching the long needle swing on its never-ceasing errant way. 
and although she understood nothing, she was intrigued and delighted by the complexity and the detail. Pantalaimon became a mouse to get closer to it, and rested his tiny paws on the edge, his button eyes bright black with curiosity, as he watched the needle swing. With all that description of the workmanship and the wonder, there's also this distinction between what it means and what it's for. And that seems to be connected with the difference between understanding and being intrigued and delighted, between knowing and being curious. From there, she wonders again about Azriel and the master. What do you think the master meant about Uncle Azriel, she said. Perhaps we've got to keep it safe and give it to him. But the master was going to poison him. Perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps he was going to say, don't give it to him. No, Pantalaimon said. It was her we had to keep it safe from. There was a soft knock at the door. Again, Pantalaimon is interrupted. There's where the chapter ends, with Lyra keeping the alethiometer private under her pillow, just for safety. Before we go into recess, there was one other interesting connection that I came across here. In one interview, when he's asked about the alethiometer, this is with Julie Renton for Textualities.net, Pullman says, I love the beauty of mechanical devices, orreries, watches, compasses. The alethiometer came out of my interest in the Renaissance, the world described so vividly by Francis Yates in The Art of Memory and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Francis Yates described the memory theater, an imaginary construction that you gradually accumulate in your mind. Part of rhetorical technique was to memorize every detail of this complex building and use it to remember the points in a speech by placing them in the form of vivid images. This notion of embodying moral and philosophical ideas and pictures is what lay behind the alethiometer, a device for the divination of truth that works a little like a clock or a compass. Now, in another place, I had read about Francis Yates, and I realized that it's in C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image. He says there, Grammar talks, as the couplet says, or, as Isidore defines her, grammar is the skill of speech. That is, she teaches us Latin. But we must not imagine that to learn grammar merely corresponded to what we should now call having a classical education, or even to becoming a humanist in the Renaissance sense. Latin was still the living Esperanto of the Western world, and great works were still being written in it. It was the language par excellence, so that the very word Latin... Laden in Anglo-Saxon and Leiden in Middle English came to earth and her inhabitants to mean language. Canis, in the squire's tale, by means of her magic ring, understood well everything that any fowl may in his Leiden assain. Italian Latino is used by Petrarch in the same sense. An interpreter is a Latiner, whence the name Latimer. But while grammar was thus restricted to a single tongue, in another way, it sometimes extended far beyond the realm it claims today. 
It had done so for centuries. Contillion suggests literatura as the proper translation of Greek grammatike, and literatura, though it does not mean literature, included a great deal more than literacy. It included all that is required for making up a set book, syntax, etymology, prosody, and the explanation of allusions. Isidore makes even history a department of grammar. He would have described the book I am now writing as a book of grammar. Scholarship is perhaps our nearest equivalent. In popular usage, grammatica or grammaria slid into the vague sense of learning in general, and since learning is usually an object both of respect and suspicion to the masses, grammar, in the form grammary, comes to mean magic. Thus, in the ballad of Kin Estmir, my mother was a western woman learned in grammaria, and from grammary, by a familiar sound change, comes glamour a word whose associations with grammar and even with magic have now been annihilated by the beauty specialists. And that's quoted in Sententiae Antiquae, but it's also available in full, the discarded image on uh, archive.org. So there's your etymology for this week. I think that stuff's pretty fun. For recess this week, proper recess, we get a kind of reprise of chapter 2. And supposing the gameplay in chapter 3 to have taken up a correspondingly long time as the chapter itself does to read, if not more, the player may well be ready for a shorter chapter 4, returning to some of the attention-directing mechanics that we looked at in chapters 1 and 2. Aside from those relatively short but story-wise very important scenes in the Master's Lodging, and bidding farewell to places and people in Jordan, the player will get to explore the Zeppelin, such as it is, and overlook essentially the same landscapes as were described in the Tony Macarius interlude, only this time in person with Lyra and Pan looking down at them through the window. The Zeppelin may have an item or Easter egg or two hidden aboard, but the passenger and operating area cannot be much bigger than a double-decker bus. Landing in London, Lyra will have to stay close to Mrs. Coulter, so exploring will be fairly limited here, too. Only at the end of Chapter 5 will the player get to move about freely in the London of the game, and the experience ought to be terrifying. The great novelty in this chapter, of course, will be the alethiometer itself, I'm not sure quite how the mechanics of using it should work, but I think it has to be more engaging than just turning the three wheels to choose which pictures to point at and watching the fourth needle swing. I think it should be more like a game within the game, as reading it for Lyra becomes a kind of reading within the book. And if the minigame could be something like the game in Mario RPG or like the UFO game in Ape Escape, and yet also reflect the art of maintaining the balanced state of attention and openness necessary for reading the instrument, I think that would be pretty cool. Now, at this stage, you'd only be sort of playing around with it, because Lyra, of course, doesn't know how to read it yet, and the player can't either. Um, as we learn a bit later more what it's like, I think we can flesh out what the game version of this should 
develop into. But for now, that's my impression, that it should be fun, that it should be dynamic, uh, and that things that represent distractions could be blasted, like the aliens in uh, Space Invaders, sort of uh, fitted in, or the pieces of understanding could be fitted into place, like the blocks in Tetris, something like that. Now, I mentioned last time about the uh, ribbon that Lyra has in her hair, and in this chapter we also hear about her going shopping and seeing lots of cool items at the museum. And I think, in general, I'd like it to be, as in the book, a fairly limited inventory of items that you acquire in the game. Um, although there could be some, and there could be some Easter eggs, like um, a paper of Mrs. Coulter's that you find under one of the uh, the seats on the Zeppelin, or, or something like that. Um, I don't think that Lyra needs to have a great big inventory of items um, for healing and uh, this and that. I think we'll talk next week more about the fight mechanics, such as they are, and uh, get for a little more thought to that. Um, but yeah, for now, I think the idea that uh, we want to travel light uh, is, is pretty important. So the interest in the game has to uh, lie elsewhere. If you're acquiring things, it's going to be in the form of story, of bits of story, as Pullman talks about in lots of places, uh, stealing shiny bits of story. So I know it's a short recess this time, but that chapter took me a little longer to think through than I expected. So I'll leave you to your own recess now, and I hope that you enjoy and that you uh, tune in again. Next week is the conversation with Verlin Flieger, and I think it's really, real interesting. So uh, I will uh, let you go for now. Take care. <laughs>